Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you again this morning. Well, as we continue uh, our series, pastoral summer sermon series, um, we turn to discipleship in the family. And it has been said that the family is the basic building block of society. Uh, Everyone is part of a family, and society continues to grow as families are established and grow. Similarly, the church is comprised of a myriad of families, which form the family of God as we are all adopted sons and daughters of the king. It's no secret, as you look around in our culture, in our society, that this basic building block has rapidly and catastrophically been deteriorating in America. The family unit has been under attack for decades. Marriage has become old-fashioned. Fewer and fewer people are actually getting married and opt to just live together instead. Not to mention the myriad of perversions of marriage in our country. The reality is that our nation has absolutely no fear of God before them, nor any care or concern for the sacred gift that God has given us in marriage. Similar concerns are are found when you look to the spiritual state of children in our nation. One man leading a team of researchers found this, He says, quote, our research suggests that religious congregations are losing out to schools and the media for the time and attention of youth. When it comes to the formation of the lives of youth viewed sociologically, faith communities typically get a very small seat at the end of the table for a very limited period of time. The youth formation table is dominated structurally by the powerful and vocal actors, hence Most teens know details about television characters and pop stars, but are quite vague about Moses and Jesus. Most youth are well-versed about the dangers of drunk driving, AIDS, and drugs, but haven't a clue about their own tradition's core ideas. Many parents also clearly prioritize homework and sports over church or youth group attendance. If you want examples, you can ask any of the youth staff. We have myriads of them. Couple that with the devastating rise of teen anxiety, depression, suicide, substance abuse, cutting, all of this demonstrates that teens are just not in a great place in our day today. A few years ago, a study from the CDC showed that 36.7% of teens had persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. The same study showed that 16.1% had major depressive episodes. Put all this together and you find that the family life in America is not only on a deep decline, but in tragic ruin. And the sad thing is it's not just in our culture, but it is in our church. It is right here. The spiritual maturity of the church as a whole depends largely on the spiritual maturity of the families that comprise the church. So what are we to do, church? Parents, grandparents, children, singles, what are we to do 
as family life deteriorates around us, how are we to protect and safeguard our own families, our own church from this looming tragedy that we see falling all around us? I'm gonna suggest that these problems that we see Many of these problems exist within families because discipleship in the family does not. According to scripture, discipleship is intrinsic to proper family life. This priority and responsibility is seen no clearer than in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Turn in your Bibles there to Deuteronomy chapter 6. As you're turning there, before we dive into this passage, it's helpful to have a little background of what's going on here. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law from the Greek, deutero and namos, second and law. It is the second provision of it. The first giving of the law was in Exodus when Moses gave to that first generation of Israelites who escaped from Egypt the law of God. In their disobedience and disbelief, they were left to wander the wilderness until that first generation passed. And now this second generation is looking ahead to entering the promised land, and Moses is recognizing that they need to hear the law again if they're going to live more faithfully than their parents. You're going into the land, Moses is thinking. You will be surrounded by paganism, by idolatry. And so here's what you need to know in order to live in such a way that you are going to be God-fearing. You are going to be faithful in the face of that paganism. So you can live out your days better than your parents lived. These words to the Israelites nearly 3,500 years ago ring true today, do they not? We live in a land surrounded by paganism. We live in a land surrounded by idolatry, surrounded by temptation. And Moses' words point to the priority of discipleship in the family if we are to maintain generational faithfulness. So in verses four through nine, he provides three directives for discipleship in the family. And just to give you a roadmap of where we're going, we're gonna look at these three directives and then we are going to apply those uh, into each of the family roles. So we will look at the roles of the family members and how those directives apply to each and every one of you. So let's first look first at the, the first directive, which is con the continual command. The continual command, look at verses four through six of Deuteronomy six. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. So Moses begins with this heartfelt plea to listen up, saying, hey, listen, hear. The word hear is the, the Hebrew word shema, it's a command he is giving to the people with a, an expectation of not just hearing, but heeding. Listen, hear, O Israel. This word is, it carries with it listening, obeying. It is hearing critically. It has a weightiness to it. It is a hearing that leads to obedience, living out what has been heard. What is it that requires such attentive obedience that he's pointing to, what is it 
of such importance that Moses begins with this plea, well, it is nothing other than the character of God and the appropriate response to God's character. Look at verse four. He says, the Lord our God is one. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. There's several truths here in this simple statement. We see that the Lord is our God. To the Israelites, this is a reminder of the unique relationship that they had with the creator of the universe. Second, he is our God. It's a reminder of the privilege to have that relationship with him and the absolute rule and authority that he has as God over them. And also that the Lord is one. He alone is exclusively God. This is what Moses explains in Just two chapters earlier, Deuteronomy 4.35, he says, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God. There is no other beside him. So in a pagan world filled with idol worship, filled with polytheism, Moses was preparing this people to enter in and remember there is but one God and he is your God. And don't forget that. Regardless of what the culture would call them to worship, There is just one true God worthy of worship. The result of this knowledge is a total life commitment. It is complete allegiance to the Lord. The truth of who God is serves as the introduction meant to motivate the people to that continual command provided in verse five. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is familiar to you. Jesus repeated these words when he was asked what the greatest commandment is. He quotes this passage. This is central to the entirety of the law. All of the law is summed up by a love for God, which then overflows into a love for other people. One of the greatest, today's greatest modern day Theologians, Patrick Sliman, says this about this passage. He says, everything in the believer's life flows out of obedience to this one command, an undivided love for the one true and living God. An undivided love for the one true and living God. This love is all-encompassing. It is a love that permeates heart, soul, and might The word heart here is a reference to all that is immaterial about you. It's obviously not a reference to the physical organ, so then it must be something more metaphorical, a, a metaphorical use of this term. The theological word book of the Old Testament explains, in its abstract meaning, heart became the richest biblical term for the totality of man's inner or immaterial nature. In biblical literature, it is the most frequently used term for man's immaterial personality functions as well as the most inclusive term for them since in the Bible, virtually every immaterial function of man is attributed to the heart. Heart and soul here are paired together and they're paired together in eight other ways in Deuteronomy and all of them are synonymous with man's immaterial nature. This is all of you internally. It is everything about you that is unattainable by mankind. It is the part of you that no one knows except you and the Lord. 
There are the motives you have, the desires you have, the thoughts you have when you lay in bed at night. And God wants it all, all of it, wholly devoted to him. The word might refers to strength. It is force, abundance. It includes all aspects of you that mind and soul don't include. Your effort, every action, every decision, everywhere you go, everything you say, everything you do, all that you do wrapped up in this one word, might. In short, these three words are to encompass every part of you, everything. Your love for the Lord is to encompass every aspect of who you are and how often, you might ask, remember, it's the continual command, I already gave it away. Verse six explains these words which I'm commanding you, Today shall be on your heart. This is to be a defining aspect of you, who you are. The, the commands of, of God's word are to be on your heart continually. John Calvin notes that God would have it implanted in their hearts lest forgetfulness of it should ever steal them over. And by the word heart, he designates the memory and other faculties of the mind as though he had said that this was so great a treasure that there was good cause that they should hide it in their hearts or so fix this doctrine deeply in their minds that it should never escape. This continual command was given to the people so that as they went into this pagan land filled with idolatry and temptation, they would know how to live in that world with faithfulness and joy. The continual command is to love the Lord and to have his word on your heart. The second directive for discipleship in the family is the duplicating demand, the call to personal affection in that continual command, that affection toward the Lord, that steadfast foundation in Scripture turns quickly to the outworking of that affection in the commitment with discipleship within the family. It is the natural overflow of that love for the Lord. Look at verse seven. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Parents, you are to see to it that you live out that continual command and that you see it duplicated in the lives of your children. The word teach is found eight other times in different forms, and all of them refer to sharpening or inscribing. It's not your normal word for teaching. It depicts a, a master craftsman who stands for hours, maybe days, in front of a pillar of stone, carefully carving out intricate details of a, a face and a, a neck and shoulders and arms and body and legs and feet, until his time with that statue is finished and it becomes the masterpiece that he intended it to be. That is our job as parents. We have here the blueprint of what our children, what a faithful believer looks like. And we have 18 years of authority in our children's lives to inscribe as much of it as possible on their hearts and lives with the hope that they will one day be carved into that perfect image of Christ. 
And after those 18 years, we then have a a lifetime of influence to continue that work in whatever capacity the Lord allows. What should that look like? Moses explained, you shall talk of them, the commandments, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. So Moses employs a figure of speech twice here called merism. Merisms are common figures of speech used in Hebrew. We also use them, but it it uses the, the opposites to include the whole realm of that category. So examples in English are from A to Z. Right, we're including everything in that when we say A to Z. From east to west, we don't just mean east-west, not north-south. Right? We mean everywhere. It's the same thing here. One commentary explains these opposite terms refer not just to the actions they specify, but also everything in between. They signify totality. By using these two phrases, Moses highlights the fact that God's people are to teach their children about God and his expectations of them in all contexts of life. They're to permeate every realm of a believer's life. God's truth was and is to be the topic for ordinary conversation in ordinary homes, in ordinary life, from breakfast to bedtime, whether we are busy or not. Parents, the call here is for that continual command that is always on your heart to be duplicated constantly in everyday life as you are living life with your children. In everyday circumstances, they're to see that fleshed out. It's taking advantage of ordinary things in life to point to and teach the truth of God's word to your kids. It's building a biblical worldview day by day, pointing your kids to truth so that when they're adults, they have a solid foundation of truth to launch into life and make right decisions for themselves in a pagan world. That is the duplicating demand. We've seen the continual command, duplicating demand. Finally, the third directive for discipleship in the family is the all-encompassing attitude. The all-encompassing attitude. Look at verses eight and nine. Shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, over time, this command became something Israel obeyed literally with the use of phylacteries and mezuzahs. A phylactery, the expositor's Bible commentary explains, is a small box that contains several verses from the Pentateuch. This box is in a leather pouch that has leather straps on both sides. The leather straps are wrapped around the wrist or the forehead so that the box containing the scriptures rests in the middle of the forehead or the wrist. Similarly, a mezuzah is a small box with a portion of scriptures that would be nailed to the right side of the doorpost entering a home. So these were, this was very concrete literal obedience to these verses and it became clear however that in the ministry of Christ that they were missing the point Jesus speaking to the Pharisees says in Matthew 23 5 he says they do all their deeds to be noticed by men for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garment they were just doing it legalistically to look good they're carrying out the deed look Moses we're obeying 
It's clear from Christ's comments and the context here of this passage that we're to understand this metaphorically as well. Eugene Merrill explains, he says, the binding, that this binding on the arm and forehead was originally intended to be figurative, more precisely metaphorical, is quite clear from the context of the instruction where there can be no doubt about the non-literal meaning of upon the heart, at home, and along the road. So if we're not to apply this literally, nobody's wearing phylacteries this morning, so I think we're all on the same page. If we're not to bind these to our bodies and nail these to the doorposts of our house, then how is this to be taken metaphorically? This is a reference to God's word always being in your hand, in the things that you do, the things that you carry out. It should always be on the forefront of your mind, in your thinking, should characterize your household as though the very entrance of your house is built upon God's word. It should identify who you are in the community as though it were obvious as you enter the gates of the city that is a person who follows the Lord. The word of God is to be an all-encompassing attitude that permeates every area of your life. Moses is reiterating this again. It should be a defining aspect of your life in your heart, in your home, and to all of humanity. God's word is to be the central focus of this all-encompassing attitude. Let's turn our attention now to application in the family. We flew through that. We could have spent 14 weeks on those verses We flew through it. Now let's look at how these apply to the various family roles. I hope none of you wore sandals today because I have every intention of stepping on everyone's toes. As I've studied this passage for the last few weeks, the Lord has been stomping on mine, so I'm just going to share the love. A culture of discipleship will not manifest at Emmanuel Baptist Church if it is not first and foremost taking place in your home. I'm gonna say that again because I believe it's important for you to hear the impact of what happens in your home on the body of Christ. A culture of discipleship will not manifest in the body at EBC if it is not first and foremost taking place in your home. Our church is made up of a tapestry of families. We have large families. We have small families. We have couples. We have grandparents. We have singles. All of you fall into one of those categories of family life and maybe more than just one. So we'll begin with single adults in here. You might be thinking, Tim, this doesn't apply to me. I was hoping to just sit back and relax this morning. But it does. I believe you have a profound opportunity to impact others in a loving, spiritual parent kind of way. We see this relationship in Scripture. Look at 1 Timothy 1-2. Paul says to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This loving parental care 
from Paul to Timothy. Later, Paul reiterates the impact of his spiritual parental relationship with Timothy on his life. He says, 2 Timothy 3.10, now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance. It sounds like discipleship. You followed me as I carried these things out. Listen, I'm a product of this. I did not grow up in a Christian home. My parents had no impact on my life in pointing me to Christ or to the truth. Uh, but when I became a believer, the Lord surrounded me uh, with numerous godly men and women, some of them married, some of them single. And they had a, a profound impact on me. They took me in as, as a spiritual child. I had many spiritual dads and mothers in the church that took me under their wing. They modeled truth for me, taught truth to me, encouraged me, confronted me a lot. And they held me accountable. You singles, you have an awesome opportunity to do that same thing to have that kind of Paul and Timothy relationship with people in the church. And so you commit yourself to that com continual command to love the Lord, to be in the word, and then pour that out onto other people. The next family relationship is grandparents. Grandparents, many of you today our grandparents, and you know the unique privilege that it is to be grandparents. You get all the joys of parenting without the difficulty, right? Amen. There's a dirty diaper. It's like, oh, what? Here you go. I'm going to go sit down for a minute. You have a fun time with them all day, and then toward the end of the day, they're tired and they're fussy, and you just get to drop them off and go home. Right? All the joys. But if you're a believer in here, grandparents, what a profound, profound opportunity you have. And, and I'd say responsibility to model Christ-likeness, to model a commitment to the Lord for those little ones, to speak truth into their lives. Parents, how many times have you told a kid something over and over and over and over again for years and then someone else says it and they're like, their life has changed? And you're like, what's going on? I've been telling you that for 10 years. They say it once and you've got it. Grandparents, you have that opportunity. You can be that, that one that speaks truth into your, your grandchild's life and, and you could be the one who for the first time maybe that, that light bulb goes off and they, they see the truth. You get to watch the Lord transform them. What a profound opportunity. You see this again modeled in Timothy's life, right? His grandmother Lois who had a sincere faith that was passed on to him, you see in 2 Timothy 1.5. 2 Timothy 3.15, we see that Timothy knew the sacred scriptures from childhood. From childhood. That word literally means infancy. How? How did Timothy know that? Well, because he had a faithful grandmother and a faithful mother. He knew the sacred writings specifically which led to salvation. This is profound. 
Parents, grandparents, we underestimate the ability of our children to understand truth, to understand and grasp deep theological truths. We do not give them enough credit. They're far more competent than we think. If you think I'm wrong, you're all invited to the next middle school Q&A because every time we have them, it's amazing, amazing to see what some of these 11, 12, 13-year-olds are processing and thinking through. Unbelievable. So grandparents, listen, they may not be your kids. They may not be your, your responsibility, but you still have the responsibility of being a disciple-making influence on them. Not my kid, not my problem doesn't apply to you. It's a good real-life illustration. I like it. So many grandparents squander these years, throw all of their time and energy and money into leisure and relaxation and vacations, and they're absent. Meanwhile, grandchildren have little to no impact from the decades of wisdom and experience that you hold. Be there. Be there. John Piper would say, don't waste your life, don't waste the last years of your life on a shell collection that you can't take with you. Invest in the eternal souls. Be that gentle, loving, godly grandparent who's there and who points their kids, their grandkids to Christ. Children, you're next. You're next. If you're under 18, go ahead and stand up. Stand up if you're under 18. And if you're, if you're under 10, you can stand on your chair. So I know your parents tell you not to, but if you're under 10, go ahead and climb up on your chair. All right, yeah. There they are. All right. Just want to see you. I want everyone else to see you too. All right, you can sit down. Listen to me, kids. Your primary focus is that first directive. During this time in your life, your primary focus is that first directive of the continual command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. All of it. You pour your life into loving God. All of your focus should be on that undivided love and affection for the Lord. You are growing up in a, a world that is far more difficult than your parents and grandparents could have possibly imagined. So it's your job to fix your attention on Christ. I'm tired, I cry when I'm tired, I'm sorry. Focus on learning the truth that is going to guide you that is going to direct your path. And if your parents are believers, you have such an incredible gift. And you should treasure that. They've lived longer than you. They, I know you don't think so, they do know more than you. It's true. They really, really do. 
And kids, if, if your parents are believers, then they, they hopefully have had years of biblical understanding and growing in Christ-likeness so that you have a resource that you can't even imagine at your disposal if you just talk to them. This is why Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, calls you children to honor and obey your parents. You're to honor and obey them. You're to listen to them. God didn't just say this for no reason. It's because they've been around for a long time. They're trying to help you. In honoring and obeying them, you're not only going to be living in obedience to the word, but also hopefully growing in righteousness as well. But I want to take it a step further. That's your primary focus. But what discipleship impact can you kids have in your family? And I I believe there's more there than you think. I think you can have a, a great impact, a great influence on your family for righteousness sake. If you have siblings, you can be an example of Christ's likeness to them. You can live in such a way that they see Jesus in you in your decisions. You can encourage them to do what is right, to think what is right to have the right kind of attitudes. It's very easy, kids, to get sucked into doing the wrong thing, right? You walk into a room, your siblings are all doing everything that they're not supposed to do, and you're like, that looks like fun, I'm jumping in. Instead of being that influence for righteousness, you have an opportunity to, to bring discipleship into your family with your siblings, to be a blessing to them, to point them to truth. Now, there's another area that you can do this as well, and your parents don't want me to say this, but I'm going to anyway. You live with your parents. You know that they're sinful, right? Well, the kids said, no amens? Okay, that's good. That's good. You got to go home with them. That was a good choice. It's a good choice. Listen, children, you probably see your parents sin more than anyone else in the world. You see them in the home when they're most comfortable. You see them when they're at their worst, when they first wake up and they haven't had their coffee yet. So you have the opportunity to help your parents grow in Christ by respectfully and kindly and lovingly help them see when and where they're struggling. Parents, I know you're uncomfortable with that. But kids, you have to be careful with this. It's very delicate. It's very easy for you to go from loving, respectful to disrespectful and rude, right? So you have to be very careful with how you address your parents so that you're honoring and respecting them. So maybe ask your parents, hey, what would be the best way for me to do that if I see something that I think is is maybe not in line with scripture? They will hopefully, parents, be humble enough to have that conversation with you and humble enough to receive gentle correction even from a child. Next is wives and mothers. Wives and mothers, first wives, you have the, a profound responsibility in discipleship in your family because the only person who sees your husband sin more than your kids is you. <laughs> Your God-given role, biblically, is to be a submissive helper to your husband. You see that in Genesis 2, 
creation of humanity, a rib taken from Adam's side that he would be made by God, that she would be made by God to be a helper suitable for him. Ephesians 5 describes how you are to submit yourself to his leadership. Now, wives, it's no, it's no surprise to you, this role is under attack in our culture. We live in a pagan land seeking to destroy the family by making you think that you should fill a role that God did not design you to fill. Ladies, it's your job to cling to the truth, to live in such a way that is countercultural, coming alongside your husband to help him, to love him, to be there with him in the discipleship efforts in the home. And this begins, wives, with your loving, grace-filled confrontation of your husband. You should regularly be pointing your husband back to God's word in his shortcomings in order to help him grow. You have the opportunity to utilize those everyday moments in everyday life where he falls short to point that out to him and point him to Christ. should continually be drawing his attention back to scripture. In times of financial crisis, in times of of business anxiety, in times of uncertainty, in times of marital problems, you can be the voice of truth to ease his mind. You can be the voice of truth to bring God's word to bear on the situation that you're facing that he's maybe not responding well to. If you want real life examples, you can talk to my wife. She has lots of them. This discipleship should also be manifested with your children. You should be seeking the Lord so faithfully with that continual commitment to him that that naturally pours out in your home to the children and is evidenced as you disciple them. More often than not, wives, you spend significantly more time with your children than husbands do. Not always, but more often than not. We saw the example of Timothy earlier, right? The sacred scriptures he knew from childhood were the result of the the faith of his mother and grandmother. His mother Eunice discipled him, taught him the truth, made sure he learned and understood the scriptures. While you're going about your day with your children, how can you continually have that impact on them with the truth of God's word? What real life situations can you use to point your kids to right thinking and right behavior? Moms, you often want to shelter your kids and protect them from the world so that they aren't tempted by it. But I've seen so many kids grow up, graduate, and go off into the world completely unequipped to handle what's ahead of them. Woefully inadequate to know how to handle the temptation that they're about to be hit with. Moses' teaching is for parents to equip their kids to be in a pagan culture. That's what that second generation of Israelites was looking ahead to. 
It was not to shelter them from the surroundings. There's no sheltering going on, going into the land of Canaan. What if, rather than sheltering kids from the world, we taught them about why the pagan world and culture and idolatry around us is wrong? What if we exposed them to it before their buddies at school do and told them this is what God's word says about that and you're gonna encounter this? What if rather than inundating them with, with all of our politics and preferences, we inoculated them from idolatry? We exposed them to God's word that is going to teach them right thinking. And moms, they're watching you. <laughs> they're watching your life every day. They're watching what you do, how you spend your time, the words that you say and the way that you say them. They're watching how you relate to God, how you relate to other people, how you relate to the world, how you relate to sin, how you relate to your husband. They're watching. You've heard there's more caught than taught. It's a saying for a reason. Some of the greatest discipleship you could ever do is living out that first directive, that continual command of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your might in every realm of your life. They'll see that. They'll see a life that trusts They'll see a life that depends on the Lord, that is grounded in Scripture. How are you doing, moms? How, how are you doing? Are, are there things that need to, to change in your home? Finally, husbands, fathers, saved you for last on purpose. So if you've fallen asleep, wake up. If you're sitting near someone that's sleeping, give them the elbow. All right, men, I'm convinced that one of the greatest problems in the church is not the way that the staff organizes things. It's not the way, this might shock you, it's not the way that things get communicated or don't get communicated. It's not even how the elders make decisions, though certainly all of those things can be problems at times. I believe one of the greatest problems facing the church is that of spiritually derelict fathers and husbands. You may be present in your home, but spiritually absent. I said earlier that the culture of discipleship will not manifest in the body of EBC if it is not first and foremost taking place in the home, in the family, and when you search the pages of scripture, men, you find the primary responsibility of discipleship in the family falls on your shoulders, not your wives, not your kids, not the youth pastor, your shoulders. If discipleship is not happening in your home, if you are not discipling your wife, if you are not discipling your children, that is your fault. Now, wives are to come alongside husbands and help them 
in accomplishing the discipleship goals for the family, but oftentimes wives take leadership in this area because there is a spiritual vacuum left by their husbands. Vodi Bakum says it well. He says, if you pl- fail to plan, then you're planning to fail. If we've heard this once, we've heard it a thousand times. Why? Because it's absolutely true, especially when it comes to the family. If we don't plan that family vacation, the summer will come and go and we will wonder what happened. If we don't put that piano recital on the calendar, something else will fill its place. And if we don't carve out time to disciple our children, it simply will not get done. Husbands, fathers, I don't have the time is not an excuse. That is invalid. I'm not sure what to do is unacceptable. My wife is more spiritual than I am is a cop-out. When Eve ate the fruit in the garden and the Lord showed up, he did not walk into the garden calling for her, did he? Genesis 3.9 says, the Lord God called to who? Called to the man And he said, where are you? Gentlemen, if you are a spiritually delinquent husband or father, it is not the pastor you have to answer to and it is not even your wife. It is ultimately the Lord that you will give an account to for your wife and your children. The buck stops with you and the responsibility falls on your shoulders The Lord has made you the head of the household to lead your family, to lead your wife, to lead your children. This fact is often only brought up by men when it is a benefit to them to get what they want. If you've done that, shame. That is not Christ-like servant leadership that we have depicted in scripture. Men, God has called us to love our bride, to shepherd our children. I've struggled with the implications of this and my responsibility as a husband for nearly 15 years and as a father for almost 12. What does this look like What does obedience to these commands look like in my family? And until recently, I've I've had a, a rather legalistic understanding and view of what it means to carry this out. So my desire is not to impose necessarily an unnecessary guilt, though there may be some necessary guilt, my desire is that the Spirit would bring conviction where necessary, men, and that, that those who are failing would feel that conviction. Uh, and I, I want to bring comfort to those who are, are burdened by, the, by legalism as a father, as a, a husband. I thought for years that if I'm not reading the Bible to my wife every day, 20 chapters, and praying with her before we fall asleep, that I'm failing in my responsibilities as a husband. I also thought that if I wasn't having daily devotions with my kids in the morning and ending the day with family worship, that I was being negligent in my role as a spiritual provider. 
And I don't want to downplay these activities. By all means, men, read the Bible to your wives and pray with her. For heaven's sake, have devotions with your kids. Have family worship with your kids. These things are important. I don't want to downplay those. All of them are are wonderful opportunities to be in God's word. But I've interacted with many, many men who follow those things to a T but are clueless as to the spiritual state of their family. No idea where their wife, their wife is spiritually, no idea where their kids are spiritually, but they're having their devotions. The spiritual leadership of your family is not simply a, a checklist each day to make you feel like you've accomplished it. That's not it, men. That's not what Deuteronomy 6 is talking about. Deuteronomy 6 is calling you first to have your own personal passionate, thriving relationship with the Lord your God. And for that to bleed out into your family members, it is to be continual. It's not just a reading, the, reading a devotion in the morning and you're done for the day. I've finished for the day. Check. That's not it. There is active ongoing, day-by-day shepherding that is taking place moment-by-moment when you feel like it and especially when you don't. With each new circumstance, each new struggle, each new phase of life, they are all shepherding opportunities. You don't watch them float by and think, oh, well, I probably should say something or do something. Uh, well, well, time's passed. Last Thanksgiving, we were visiting family staying in a hotel um, and one of the days Katie and I were getting food ready in the hotel room and we had put a cartoon on TV for the kids and commercials come on and we hear from the other room a, a man's voice say and when I married my husband like, what in the world and we looked over to the couch see our four kids just sitting there staring at the screen two of them you know have puzzled looks on their face Parents, dads, you can't pass those opportunities up. You don't just let them float by. Like, oh, maybe they didn't hear. You don't ignore those things. Your silence is approval of the messages that they're hearing. You not telling them, hey, hold on a second, is them thinking this must be Okay. pagan culture around is building a worldview that is anything but biblical for your kids. That is what Moses means when he says, teach them diligently. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Always. You see something unbiblical in the world, you better believe your kids see it too. They also have eyes and ears. You say, hey, did you see that? What do you think about that? You see, oh, you know what? That, I didn't know what to think. I thought that was kind of strange. Like, yeah, you know what? Let's talk about that. Walk through that. Point them to the truth. Paul Tripp often says it's not the 10 huge conversations that you're going to have with your kids in life that is going to impact them. It's the 10,000 interactions that you're going to have every single day that is going to shape and mold their character. that sounds really hard and time-consuming. That is parenting. 
That is what you signed up for. You may think, I don't know what to do. And if that's you, man, it is time to man up and ask somebody. Humble yourself. Go to someone that that you respect that you know is shepherding their kids well and go ask them, hey, I, I have no idea what I'm doing. Can you please help me think this through? Husbands, fathers, a lot more could be said. Time doesn't permit. Parents, please work hard to develop an atmosphere where you and your kids can talk about truth. Work hard at that. Have the hard conversations. Talk about the things that are uncomfortable. Tell them you don't know when they ask questions you don't know the answer to, but that you're going to find out and follow up. Whatever you do not teach your kids, our culture is going to fill in those gaps. So ask yourself, how big are the gaps in your kids' lives? How big are they? Because our world is going to fill them up with the most unbiblical worldview you can possibly think of. Parents of teenagers, I mentioned it earlier, not talking about a subject is not protecting them from it. Not talking about something with your teenagers is not protecting them from it. The temptations of the world will find them Are you preparing them for that? Because I get them once a week and I can't do it. And it's not my job. It's your job. Moses attempted to prepare the family of Israel for life in the pagan culture, but we know sadly how that played out, don't we, for the Israelites. They went astray into idolatry, ultimately unbelief, And that is a a picture for us. Should be a steadfast reminder for us of the importance of discipleship in your family. It cannot be overstated. The continual command, the duplicating demand, the all-encompassing attitude must be the directives by which we carry out discipleship in our families. And each of us needs to be about the hard work of accomplishing that. For, for the sake of our families, if nothing else, but also for the sake of our church, the body of Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, what a, what a heavy weight to bear, yet Lord, we praise you that you have made it so simple for us by giving us the truth of your word. It is not complex. It is not obscure, Lord. We we thank you that you've given us your word to live by all that we need for life and for godliness. So, Father, I pray that you would bring conviction to each family member in here who needs to grow in these areas. Let them leave this building and think on how they can be an impact of discipleship, an impact of Christ-likeness day by day in their family. 
And Lord, I pray that each of the families in this church would have a, a long legacy of godliness and faithfulness to you in the face of a pagan culture, that we would see generation and generation and generation rise up from these families that love you and are committed to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.